also, I, I read your book like in I, Raw Shark Decks. I, I, I read in like 2008, 2009 or something, and I hadn't read it since. And we were talking about uh, this idea of unadaptable novels and then like adaptable novels being novels that are like coming out soon that have been made into films. And I was thinking of your book as unadaptable because the things that like stuck in my head very concretely were the, uh, I don't know if they're, do you call it like ergodic literature or the concrete poet poetry aspects of it? Yeah. Um, And and, like in my head, I was like, that is totally like, like that is a book, right? It's written in with the intention of being a book, not a film. And so like that it, it would inherently lose something in translation. And that, and that was like me as a, like, uh, however old I was in 2009 or whatever, thinking that. And then I read it this time and I was like, you could do it. And then you look at the wiki for the book and it's like, it was adapted into a screenplay. It's like, oh, you absolutely could do it because it was done basically. Right. <laughs> but I think that's like, you know, cause our show, we're in the fifth season now. And so each season of books has a different theme. And so, you know, my job here, like I do the the production, the editing, but Bob as the literature teacher programs. And I think it's hard because like there are other things that we've done where it's like we did Don DeLillo's Underworld and we're like, this is sprawling things. I really want to read the book. That's basically why we did it. And we're like, that can't be adapted. And like we read, we're like, no, it really can. Like it's not uh-huh. necessarily. So I think it's kind of like it's sort of the season is sort of morphing into like a exploration of like different ways to adapt things kind of. And so oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So have you, are you familiar with uh, the TV movie, I think from the 90s, like Stephen King's The Langoliers? Yes. Yeah, I am. I think I can I can grab a couple of bits of it to my brain. So in that story, there's like these things called the Langoliers that like eat time. That there's like a there's like a, a black hole or something that this airplane goes into. And when they land, they're like unstuck in time. And it's kind of like the unspace in your novel a little bit but like it's different and like these langoliers are like eating time and they have to escape this like they have to escape the past before they get here but then like a handful of years ago this video editor recut that movie and like instead of like regular transitions between scenes use like newspaper clippings and like really visualize like the paper element and as i'm reading raw shark text i'm like that kind of feels like a way that you could kind of because like so much of this is like paper and writing becoming real things that like Uh in the adaptation it's like would you do it like that would it be more like quote unquote normal like there's a lot of different ways i think you could kind of visually conceive this and it'd be interesting to see how this actually you know shakes out if if it becomes a thing yeah i mean it's on my desk at the moment so it's kind of down to me so that's fun when was the screenplay written so Simon Bufoy wrote a screenplay um, at the end of the noughties. It wasn't made ultimately, so the rights came back to me. So one of the – I mostly work on scripts and TV and film projects at the moment, and the rights came back to me, and it's one of the things I'm trying to do with Element Pictures at the moment. Um, so I have a pilot for it, and uh, it's almost where I want it to be, but not quite. Oh, so now you're thinking about it like as a TV series? Yeah, I think so. I think it probably needs a little more room. I think I think one of the questions about uh, adapting for the screen is kind of eased when you think about a series rather than a film because I think it's kind of boring, but I think the abridging is maybe one of the hardest things to figure out. Mm. You know, I think I, I listened to I listened to the audiobook of um Moby Dick and it's like 36 hours or something yeah it's a lot to get a big book down to run even for two and a half hours you you lose so much and the funny thing about Rush Architects is is it's kind of a house of cards and a lot of things in that book are doing odd work and, and and balancing things in a way that you don't immediately notice what mechanical job they're doing in the book until you come to try and take it apart and put it back together in a different form. And then things don't quite balance and it can be quite confusing. So I think it's one of the reasons I wanted to do it myself because I kind of know the inner workings of the book and what can be moved around, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Um, it's interesting to like, I, I found, um, this is like a, this is going to seem like a departure from what we we're just talking about, but I'll, I'll bring it back around. I found the, like I, the idea of the unchapters, 
uh-huh. um, which which I have not read any any of because I just discovered that they existed about forty eight hours ago. Um, <laughs> but I found the forum, uh, which like was was collecting all of the different unchapters, which I guess is on your is that on your website or or is it? It doesn't you know exist anymore. You can find it with the Wayback Machine, but I've I've been letting them die out as they die out. It was part of the deal I made myself with the book was that if people didn't find some of them, they'd be lost. And if they got more lost, obviously, as time went on. How many wow. How many were found? Do you know, do you have like a percentage? Like was were, were more than half of them found? No, less than half. Maybe about wow. 25%, maybe 20%. I mean, some of them were lost in a way that, that you would be very unlikely to find them. One was put in a bottle and thrown into the sea. So oh. <laughs> not, not to derail Bob. I kind of love that. Yeah, not yeah. to derail Bob's question, but can you talk about that a little bit? Because I'm curious. Yeah, like, sure. I, it's, it's such a fascinating idea that I'm like, I don't even know what, I don't even know where to begin wrapping my head around this. <laughs> well, one of the core ideas of the book was loss and the inability. Mm-hmm. It's something I come back to again and again, seemingly in my work is the inability to kind of keep things forever as much as we might try you can't kind of make a beautiful perfect curated version of your life you you know there are people you can't see anymore places you can't see anymore things that you never did while you had the chance that was a big part of what the book was about sort of accepting loss and accepting losing someone and, and trying to cheat that in a way but like and you know the book is kind of about cheating that but the wider overall idea which I love is that Things get lost over time. Things break down over time, and you know the core book isn't is is hopefully good and perfectly satisfying on its own. But there are all these; it kind of blurs out around the edges, and you might be able to find your way into that blurring a little bit. But ultimately, those things are going to crumble away and get lost as time passes. And you're and that's built into the design. Like you're totally fine with letting that like go away. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was very much part of the idea. It felt, you know, for a book that in a lot of ways is a puzzle, it, it was also important that you could never feel like it was, it could never be complete in such a way that you could fold it away and keep it and hold, hold the whole things. Because that's always my impulse is to collect all the, I'm a crazy collector, collect all the things, hold all the things, have all the things. And yeah, me too. for a book that was kind of about loss, it felt important that, you know, whatever whatever you did, it felt like there would probably be a part of this book that was missing, and that felt kind of hopefully poignant and interesting. So, when when you wrote the book and put this out and then did the unchapters, did you like let people? And I'm sure these answers is, exist on the internet, but like, did you let people know there was more to the story, or did people just start organically finding more of your writing that tied into this thing that they knew about? People started finding them that the first way that they came out was that certain editions of the book in different countries had extra bits that were all oh, labeled. Okay. So there is, uh, I think there's about five extra pages in the Italian translation and there's a, there's an image that isn't anywhere else. And there's, it's all to do with a, a bladeless sword, which you can't find in any of the other books. I think the Brazilian mm-hmm. one has an extra letter in it. It was kind of by design. The Canadian one has an index, which later was put in all of them. But it was it was kind of by design that people would hopefully read it in different places and realize that their book had something that other people didn't. And that so that's that's a little interesting because Joey was just mentioning like when we were talking when we were at lunch talking about this before he mentioned the index in the book that he has, which the book that I have does not have that because I bought it mm-hmm. in, in, you know, 2009 or whenever. And uh, like, so when he was talking about the index in my head, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I, I, like, I had no idea that that existed yeah. in the book. So, so we like inherently had different experiences reading because of that. Yeah. Because I had bought the, cause again, when we, when, when Bob had like sort of not pitched this uh, book as like this visual experience, but like it is. And I was like, I want to have the physical. Cause like, I don't know, like sometimes like I prefer reading on Kindle because you know, modern convenience has spoiled me, but like mm-hmm. Kindle can sometimes uh, ruin like visual art in a way. Sure. And like, I think that the way that it was structured here, like worked really well that I was, I was glad to see that. Like it wasn't like half of a shark's fin on one page. You turn the page in the other half. It's like, it broke <laughs> it into a thing that like, it actually, you know, I think conveyed the experience well, but I bought yeah. the physical book and I was like reading through it. And I'm like, I think I'd rather have the Kindle and I just bought the Kindle and I, I knew that I had the the reference. I could like, if something didn't look right, I could like flip through the book and then I got to the end, I'm like, there's like 
40 pages of like index. I'm like, I don't know what this is. And I just like sort of set it aside. And then I mentioned again, you know, at lunch, like Bob said, and I was like, he's like, I don't know what. So I guess that <laughs> it kind of makes sense that like, it's yeah. all part of this like unchapter plan. Yeah. That was the intended way that people would discover that something was going on was that the books would be a little different. And I actually went to the factory and I manually inserted some pages into some books wow. as well. <laughs> there's That's a, so there's cool. a, there's a secret letter that's all about how to steal other people's posts that's printed actually on brown envelopes. And I think we've put something like, uh, I don't know, it's like 200 or 300 randomly into copies. So some people- I hope you realize page. that as you're saying this, like, and I have the same collector brain as you, like you're giving me the worst <laughs> kind of FOMO that not only can I not get it, but like I'll never even have the chance to get it. It's annoying, isn't it? It is. It's very annoying, but it's also <laughs> yeah, awesome. Like, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was really partly to feed my kind of fascination in collectibles and bits and just sort of that longing for completeness that, you know, as a collector, you very rarely get the chance to have that satisfaction. And, you know, the satisfaction is kind of fleeting anyway. And it, Yeah, it's interesting to me because like you as a collector doing it, like knowing the the like uh the the pain of the missing pieces like functions as a kind of i don't know like it, it's almost like you're doing therapy on yourself with with, the, <laughs> with with this process that's it yeah yeah Accepting it's also a great that. way to encourage like one person to buy five copies of your book <laughs> well the marketing well, you... people were delighted when they realized that <laughs> yeah. was the case steven this is what crashed the comic book industry in the 90s <laughs> <laughs> oh but you have raw shark text number one the collective holographic cover. I, I mean, they, I, I don't think they really, they didn't really think anyone would ever notice. I mean, it wasn't really until we did a new paperback edition in the UK. And I think that was like 2016 or something that we put a note in the back to say that there were extra pieces. It had never really been acknowledged anywhere until then. So that was quite well, a bit I'll, later. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, like the thing. This is good. this goes back to my initial initial question. Like the reason why I I find this whole thing intimidating is that when I found like some of like a like a piece of that forum, uh, and it was like people talking about it. It was like, it was like, oh well, like armoire the original, uh, armoire in Portuguese stands for red cabinet. So we're looking at red cabinets here, and I was looking at it, and I was just like, holy fuck, how much of this book did I miss by like? Like how much did I just like, how many references and how many of these stuff did I, did I not catch? Because you, you seem to have developed this group of people that are, that are fans of yours that like have such a, uh, like intense die, like brain, intense brains for dissecting and, and picking up references that like, I think speaks very much to, to, you know, modern, uh, not just American, but like world culture, the, the, this idea, like the way that the internet has influenced us to be able to like dissect everything. But it was like, I was looking at this and I was like, what percentage of this book am I not getting? Because I'm not understanding like these different references. The idea was never that the book would be, I guess, lacking for not having read them. It was really mm -hmm. important that the core book was doing all the things it was already doing. But yeah, there were, the idea was that they were built in, in ways that would add different ways to look at the book or different potential ways to read it i wrote the book with um three different readings in mind so there's three main ways you can interpret the story and it has like a happy ending or an unhappy ending depending on what those are but between the first hardback coming out and the paperback coming out i i toured around with it in all over the place and uh, I, I heard at least another three really great readings of the book that I hadn't even considered. And some of them were so good wow. that I changed parts of the book in paperback to accommodate <laughs> those readings too. But but the the all except, should I say that? No, almost all of them, I would say, have at least one thing in the book that contradicts that reading of the story. Mm. So it's like whatever you choose to believe, there is some evidence that you have to make a leap of faith on somewhere which always feels right to me. You know, the idea is kind of that the book reflects back the kind of reader you are at Sure. And Just so, like a Rorschach test. Whoa. There you go, you see. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, met, I met one guy and, and he was absolutely furious. And he, was like, he said, I was enjoying this book so much until you did this thing at the end and I really hated it. And 
I asked him to explain what he didn't like about it. And he had this wonderfully complicated take on the end of the book that was something I'd not even thought of, but he'd completely developed this himself and then couldn't see that there was any other way to read it other than his interpretation and was furious at that interpretation. (laughs) (laughs) I I do that stuff too. I I did that with... um the Danny Boyle movie yesterday's like, I have an interpretation of that movie that makes oh, it man. the saddest movie in the world. And I can't get that interpretation out of my brain, even though it's probably not the way that it's meant to be read, but it's oh. just like, I, I can't get it out. What's your interpretation? Okay. Let, let, let me see if I can, if I can get this correct. So the woman that falls in love with him, um, sort of like, and, and follows him around, like does so because, you only learn later that she does so because uh, he covers an Oasis song at like the initial time that she like noticed him and fell in love with him was because he covered an Oasis song at like their a middle school talent show or middle something. school talent show. Yeah. But then like you learn that once it's like retconned and like Oasis is erased because the Beatles are uh, like no longer exists. So she, right, yeah. you, you like kind of can come to the interpretation of like, she only really loves him thinking that he wrote this beautiful song, uh-huh. but like she can't actually love him for him because he didn't write that song. It was an Oasis song the whole time. Yeah. And, and like, that's such a bummer of a, of an interpretation to me, but I can't, I can't get it out of my head. That completely subverts like what a, like the love story that Danny Boyle is like trying to tell. Yeah. That's great. I love that. It's, it and also me that it's an Oasis song, so it's kind of like a almost a, a heavily a cover of a heavily influenced song of someone else's. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very yeah. I don't know. It's, it's oh, a, I love it's that. It's a bummer to me. The two the two I've got that are kind of kind of rabbit holy and book nerdy, which I guess you guys might like, and you might already know these. But the one is that there's an interpretation of uh, the wind in the willows that it's post apocalyptic. I I don't know that, but yeah. So I there's a there's a passage in it, and for the life of me, I can't remember what it is. But there's a passage that sort of implies that they used to be people, but they're all dead. And there interesting, are, I'm, you know, I'm, there I'm are boats it. and cars and houses and all these things that the creatures on the riverbanks don't actually use. I, I mean, I guess like I feel like children's literature is always sort of uh, verging on on darkness on, on that like yeah super super darkness anyway. Yeah. And my other one, which I really love that I hope someone takes advantage of one day, is that the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe series takes place in the same literary universe as Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) Can you can you like uh, uh, draw that out for me a little bit? Absolutely. The very first paragraph of The Magician's Nephew, I think, is the first book. Uh, the very first paragraph says a long time ago uh, when your grandparents were young and Sherlock Holmes was still in 221B Baker Street and then mm. carries on. Wow. Like, whoa, that's a gift. Who is the, is it Munch? Like there's the character in like oh, yeah, NYPD Blue or whatever yeah, yeah. that like because of like the way that like they reference other things, there's like dozens if not hundreds of tv shows that like all supposedly exist within the same universe because like one central character has been mentioned or he's popped up as another actor like even if those things are nonsense i i love the idea of people being like what if there was more to this than just the thing yeah yeah no i love that too there's there's a character in the rorschach text index that doesn't appear in rorschach text but there is in (laughs) maxwell's demon which i didn't release till 10 years afterwards that's great if this becomes a TV series. If this gets adapted, mm. have you considered putting scenes in certain country releases that do not exist in other country releases? Oh, of course I have. Come on. Good. <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. But also, um, I kind of feel like, I feel like kind of giving away something cool, but it's so cool. I, I want to talk to you about it. You know, if it, if you make a show on a streaming platform, there is yeah. the technology that it records that you've watched that show already, right? So it shows up on your previously watched oh. or where you're up to in it. So there's nothing to say you couldn't release a show on a streaming platform. And when you watched it the second time, it was slightly different. Wow. <laughs> that's like a, that's like black mirror in like, so what, what I love is like, you know, like there's the, there's the Mandela effect where like, there's this sort of like, are you familiar with the Mandela effect? Uh, remind me. So it's like this idea that like, there's a shared consciousness or shared belief 
that a lot of people have that Nelson Mandela died in prison, but he didn't. Or like right. there's like the Berenstain Bears versus the Berenstain Bears. And like if you ask a certain person, they can say without a doubt that like it's one way or the other. Or like there's this yeah. idea that like Sinbad, the comedian, played in a movie called Shazam about a genie in the 90s, but he never did. Like there was the Kazam movie with Shaq. And like there's all these things that like people will go to their graves convinced that like this was the way that things happened. But right. because of like – the fallibility of memory and like the internet and whatever, like, like it would the, be in the burial ground in Poltergeist. Yes, yeah, it would be amazing if like, and this, I mean, it'd be it'd be incomprehensibly expensive to do. But if you like filmed like you know your different versions of raw shark texts, or like you have like a different actress play Scout in like <laughs> uh-huh. different countries, and like, oh man, I loved when like you know when uh, Anna Kendrick was Scout. Like Anna Kendrick wasn't Scout. It's like yeah, no, she was. <laughs> And, like, you start, like, online battles between different <laughs> people in different countries or regions or whatever. Like, yeah. there's there's so much room you have to just mess with people in, like, the slightest, subtlest ways. It would be great. And, and like, maybe it's slightly different again on the 10-3 play or maybe it reverts. Maybe there's a pattern there. I think there's a way to do it. So you don't have to multiple film the whole thing, but you end up filming so much extra stuff for screen anyway that you, you you can just change you know like the lord of the rings box set cuts are so different you, right. you could be clever with your ins and outs and your little bits of scenes which is kind of what i i did with the uh, unchapters to a degree and just really change the tone of things but only on the third viewing i think that would be really fun you also might make people lose their minds yeah <laughs> like that's a that's a that's a real risk well, there's actually – so something I, I saw on your wiki that I want to ask you about is that there is – like I know that you've written four video games, right? Yeah. That you wrote like I think it was Crisis and Rise and Battlefield 1 and 5. Yeah. And I know that like there's a trend and I don't know – and I, I'm curious of like what your experience was with writing those. But there is definitely this like trend in video games as they become more complex and narratively interesting of like branching dialogue paths, which I think like directly fits in here. So like – you know, if in a game like you, you die a bunch in a certain scene, like there might be a character who's just like, you know, having a tough time over here or something like that. Uh Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Did you have that kind of experience in writing any of these games? Like, could that translate into the like slight morphing of raw shark or just like broadly, like what was the experience of like writing those games? Like, cause I know that, you know, there's many different ways to write, you know, video games in a way that like two people would distinctly have very different experiences or could have two very different experiences. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we had a whole plan to do something like that with Rise, and Rise changed a lot in development. But um, most of my games have been pretty old school in that they're, they're, they're kind of more, they're more like linear movies than the books mm-hmm. and scripts I write, if anything, <laughs> in that they, you know, they play out in a certain way and it's kind of a, a pleasure in being able to do that. But yeah, I'm I'm really interested in reactive stories and kind of reactive dialogue, especially. I, I think I've got um, the craziest kids choose your own adventure type multiple path <laughs> book in me, which I can, I came up with while I had COVID. So I don't know whether it's a great idea or a fever dream, but one there, day it could I'll, be both. I'll get to it. It could absolutely be both. <laughs> I think so. Get my. But like, there's like, I don't know. Are you familiar with the video game Hades? Yes. Yeah. So I was explaining to Bob at lunch that Hades has like hundreds of thousands, if not maybe millions of lines of dialogue that like you could play that game for like hundreds of hours and not come close to scratching the surface of like, because they like patented, they developed this like crazy complex system to like branching dialogue paths and just like the things you could do. And like, I feel like that's the kind of thing where like, when I, when I saw a YouTube video explaining how like super giant did that with Hades, I was like, oh, that's something like only video, video games can do. But then the way you're talking about like messing with people in like, you know, Netflix play history is like, oh no, you could do that in other mediums. People just aren't trying to do that. Like you, I think you could break through some, I don't know, I don't know the verb here, but like you could, you could break people's minds in different ways in different mediums that like they're not expecting. Like if people, I think video game people might be more interested, inclined to like, oh, I see what's going on here, like rewatching things. But like if you just catch like a, a middle-aged, like a parent or someone like who doesn't play video games, like just watching something, is that different? Like there's like, you could really break people's brains. Yeah. 
yeah, he says with relish. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think something I'm always interested in with formats is what can it do? What can it do that nobody is getting it to do at the moment? Or what can it do that people don't expect? Like the thing with streamer services, it's like, okay, so the carousel and it recording your, re- your viewing and where you're up to and how long you've watched, all of that stuff is useful. There's, there's a narrative story way to play with that and mess with that and Rorschach was a lot like that I mean it was like what can you do with however many printed pages that flip over and that's why it has a flip book in it and lots of other things that kind of dependent on the page but the very first thing I ever had published was called um, stories for a phone book and it was a short story laid out like the pages of a telephone directory so and that was just about how can you tell a story in the layout of an old school telephone directory with just like the people whose names start with st and uh i did i did it by removing all the addresses are gone and there's just one line of text about every single person but if you kind of look they connect like two of them say an identical twin and (laughs) they kind of influence each other a little bit as you look around the page so and that funnily enough was the first thing i adapted and we almost made that it's it's kind of an interactive interactive tv show which is really wild and has become really close to getting on screen a couple of times so wow hopefully that'll happen but it has about 60 characters wow you can find your way through it in different ways and, and also you it has an interface that doesn't a bit like the unchapters doesn't tell you all that it's got going on under the hood so you have to poke it a bit and you'll find that it's doing more than you think it is and can dig it is that gettable? Could we like uh, either the short story or uh, I mean I know you said the the adaptation of it hasn't you ha- you haven't like put that out or anything but it, it, like where could you find the short story for that? The short story, um, God, it was hosted. I think it's not available at the moment, but it's one of the things that I'm going to try and get back up on my website. The Langoliers because... got it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, right. yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll 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 find it somewhere. Well, sure. it, it does feel like that kind of like interactive game is on the rise, at least like on Netflix. Like Netflix is trying things like with Black Mirror or with like there was like some kind of like Looney Tunes esque cartoon where it's like choose your own adventure that plays out different ways. Like it feels like the more people kind of want to mix genre, like it feels like the time is right for that. Like that feels like a thing that people would be really into. Yeah, we were a little ahead. I mean, it was it was ready to go in like uh like 2014 2015 it was a bit too ahead of its time so it was before black mirror was on netflix and i think it was just so big and i think partly because it was so new and it was so much fun we had quite a few stars want to say they would be in it so it became a bit bigger than um just an experimental proposition i think so it almost kind of became a victim of its own success and snowballed into a a big thing that no one had ever done before, which is mm. pretty scary for anyone to fund. Um, so do I, do I uh, have this right that you went to uh, college for visual arts? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Painting, photography and printmaking. Yeah. Okay. What was, what was that work like? It was, it was some painting. It was some photography out in the world where I would make notes in chalk of things that I thought was interesting. So there was uh, like a dropped comb. I would draw a little diagram of the comb and leave notes to how far away it was and then take pictures. So it was little strange signs and um, kind of heads up about things that were just happening at a really small level in the environment, which was fun. But I found that I was kind of starting to play around with text more and, and actually some of the fish and sharks from the raw shark text kind of came towards the end after I'd finished my degree when I was still doing art and then I was kind of playing around with the spaces between them and sort of found that I was writing writing stories without realizing it I was transitioning so I think by the time I left my degree I was a writer and I didn't really it was sort of a discovery. I wasn't. I didn't go to college planning to become a writer, but I found my way through into visual text and, you know, concrete structures and the storytelling opportunities of that. And then playing around with exploring the page and it just became more and more like prose until it, it was. I was like, oh, okay. So 
books. The, the way that you describe your photography, and, and I think this ties back into to the book in, a, in an interesting way, uh, is that I was, I don't know if I'm going to get the name of this right, but it was a thing that was on internet forums in the early 2000s, was this sort of game called uh, Invasion, I think it was called, or that's what people called it. And it was just like people who would go into places, which are very similar to the, to the unspace in, in the book, uh-huh. which are like these sort of places that it would be trespassing for you to go to, but also nobody was doing anything with these places. And you would just go into them and you would take photos mm. and, and post them to the, to the forum. And there wasn't like, it, it's not a game in the sense that like there are points or you can win, but it was like people would try to do more and more extreme things go into like crazier and crazier spaces, but it like, it, it just, uh, it's like this photographic, um, recording of, of these on the spaces. So I I was thinking about that already. And then, and then like when you're describing your, your photography, it sounds like, I don't know, like sort of the, this mapping of these spaces to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was definitely a lot of that. And I love for, you know, exploring spaces in a different way and, and trying to think of, ways to use them that is not natural or is is kind of perfectly natural but not what they're used for and not how we see them that whole idea of you know how a space has this big label in our mind that dictates what it is and actually it's not it's just a volume uh, that may or may not have a roof may not may not have a tunnel under it may not may, mm. may not may not have all its walls you know when does it stop being a library and start being a ruin you know all these things that I think it was just an interesting way of getting under language as well as under space. But yeah, I've always found it really fascinating. You know, I, I'm always interested by those doors that say staff only. In, yeah, for sure. In, in shops and you peer in them and sometimes it's just like corridors disappearing into the distance. I just want to see what's down there. Yeah, there are always, there are always doors at like the mall that like don't look like doors or something. And then you see someone go into it and you're just like, wait, what What just happened? Yeah. It, like, what is that room back there all about? What's going on back there? Yeah. Did you guys see that somebody just essentially adapted House of Leaves as a Doom mod? No. Oh. I, 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 no, I, I didn't hear about that, but, but I was thinking, I was actually thinking about House of Leaves when you were talking earlier, because I know Mark Danielewski wrote like a pilot script for for that even though that is like another essentially unadaptable book but anyway yeah tell me about tell me about this doom mod a friend of mine had sent it only a couple of weeks ago and um somebody put uh this file up on the doom modding forum saying my friend and i made this little mod of his house it's nothing to write home about but he died and i miss him and you know (laughs) we made it together and if anyone fancies playing it have a go and you wander around it and it just seems like a perfectly normal little doom mod of someone's house. And there's a really great walkthrough on YouTube where the guy points out that if you actually, you'd have to really know about modding doom to know that you can't actually have multiple levels on doom, like everything you can go up or down, but you can't put, you know, you can't put a first story above a ground Mm -hmm. floor. If you know what I mean, it's impossible that you have to get deep into the engine to change that. And this ordinary little house has an upstairs (laughs) but the the game's really straightforward but then you go out and you notice something in the garden you go back and the house changes and it gets bigger and there's a house fire and it just keeps getting stranger and weirder and corridors open up and you go to an airport and you can get on a plane and it's it's absolutely gigantic (laughs) at one point you're on a movie set um it's it's an absolute work of genius and it's been released anonymously I but, love that. Yeah. And, but, but to, I think it's interesting that, that it was House of Leaves because that element of exploration, that kind of taking that and taking that wandering around, you have it in like an old first person shooter and, and just breaking the expectations of that, like Mark did with that book, I thought was just brilliant. Yeah. Cause like the Doom modding community is like one of like the craziest, most intense. Like they will bring everything into Dune or like put Doom into anything and whatever. And, yeah, I think like w- reading like the the first like sort of chunk of Raw Shark reminded me of House of Leaves. It also reminded me of like Lost Highway and stuff of just, like just get like receiving mail that seems like you have a really specific way of turning something that's like totally innocuous into something that's like the most terrifying thing in the world. <laughs> like just getting Good. like a 
a, a box of other people's mail. And she's like, this is like normal, but also like the, like if that showed up here, I'd be like scared out of my mind. And like, you know, raw shark goes, it's, it, it, it takes a different path, but there's part of me that just like, is this going to be like one of the scariest books I've ever read? And it becomes like this, it, it's still scary, but also becomes like more, you know, like harrowing and, you know, somber and sad and like a, a different thing. But like, part of me is like, I don't like, this is like, uncomfortable in a way that I was not really expecting. And like, yeah. is that something that like, like, do you like creating that kind of like unease of like, cause like the, it's like the same thing, like in lost highway, like they just have like a VHS show up on their, their front door of like filming the inside of their house. It's like, what I, it's, it seems like gentle, but also like not knowing where it comes from makes them it super sinister. Like, is that something that you find yourself drawn to like turning the everyday into something terrifying or is that just like kind of a happy accident no no it's definitely something i'm drawn to and i think i think the re i'm trying to work out why that is and that that sense of disquiet i'm really glad that came across and i think it's something that lynch does so well it, it's like mm -hmm. because because it's every day it's triggering some deeper discomfort and more primal fear that you don't really know why it's coming out like you say in, in response to something that seems on the surface to be quite mundane. And that, it always feels to me really frightening. And also like it's just about to reveal something huge about the world that you don't quite know, you know? And I'm kind of really drawn to that feeling that, that just being on the edge of something, that, that feeling that you shouldn't quite be getting from this collection of things. And yet it's sparking this really strange, either discomfort or strange of kind of, half understanding but a logic that's kind of a dream logic mm -hmm. you know i find that really fascinating i've been digging into it quite a bit i'm working on a project at the moment um uh what can i say about it uh, probably not a whole lot other than that <laughs> it, it massively leans into that i mean i could probably say it's called fairyland and it leans heavily heavily into um kind of that feeling of the eerie and the uncanny. Mm -hmm. And what, what format is that going to be a book or is that going to be a, a TV show or a movie or like what, what, what format, what medium is that going to be? It's uh, a TV show right now. Cool. All right. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it, but I was wondering if uh, like, do you feel a kinship with, with Mark Danieluski or is that like a surface level comparison that gets made a lot or, or what? Oh no, hugely. Um, Mark was fantastic with Rorschach. He, um, the reason I think those fans uh, dived into the unchapters of Rorschach is because they were all House of Leaves fans. And the reason mm. they came to me is because Mark sent them. Um, he was generous and kind and he, you know, went around talking about Rorschach text and what a great book it was and how if you liked House of Leaves, you should check it out. And he, you know, he helped me out hugely um i think he's genius i mean that's just not um it's not a groundbreaking thing to say because of course <laughs> he is um but what did um you think of the yeah he, he um he he sent an army of puzzle solvers uh, yeah. in my direction which i'll forever be grateful for and he was very kind about my second one too so yeah what, what did you think of uh the familiar if you read it i thought it was great yeah. i thought it was really great um I mean, I just love everything he does. The thing is, you could just you can go down further than you can go across in his work, which I love, and something that I, you know, has probably come across as we're talking. Something I really love as well is like if you can find a basement and a sub basement and a basement under that in something that you thought was just a straightforward story, and then you're like, oh no, this is really about this. And oh, but if you read it this way, oh no, now we're down here. Oh, not sure I like this story anymore. You know, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of ways in uh, uh, with that stuff, and and like it's it's made for rereading, and like it's like what you were saying earlier about how they're like, you know, you have the three distinct uh, versions of uh, or the three distinct like kind of reads of Rorschach text that you mm -hmm. like uh, had intended or implied, and then like the beautiful thing is that like readers bring their own and then it's not yours anymore. And then they get to do what they want. And what they want is like, like their brains are also weird labyrinths that like bring all of their own context to things. So everything, get, that's when things get really weird, right? Yeah. It's wonderful. And then things come to life and they grow and 
change. I mean, yeah, it, it was interesting. When I first read House of Leaves, I was actually on a beach in Greece. <laughs> and it was like, it was like I re- really remember it. There was like twin sensations because I was, I was on the way with Rorschach by then. All the sharks were made and I had a good sense of it. And it was 50% oh no, I've been beaten to the punch, but also <laughs> like 50% I'm on the right track. This is possible and just look how possible it is, you know? So it was, just, it was, it was a weird kind of, oh, but also, yes. Well, I think that's kind of like what's special about like art in general is that like there's so much that is possible that people don't necessarily realize is possible until someone else does something that like gets you to the next step. Mm-hmm. That like people probably reading this are like, oh, you could do X, Y, or Z or X, Y, or Z. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it gets you to a point where it's like, Oh, like you can build and it's not necessarily like necessarily, you know, you taking from House of Leaves or people taking from you or whatever. Just like this cumulative, almost hive mind where it's like you can go beyond the medium that has existed sort of statically for like 150 or 200 or 2000 years or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I find it really funny that people still refer to book structure like Rorschach or House of Leaves as experimental literature when like Tristram Shandy came out before right. the petrol engine. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, like William Gaddis said something about that where he was like someone called uh, either JR or the recognition of experimental literature. And he was just like, I'm, I'm not experimenting on anything. Like I know exactly <laughs> like what the outcome is going to be. I'm not like yes. doing this to figure out what it is. Like I have a plan in mind. I'm not experimenting yeah. with anything. Yeah. Yeah. There's that, that strange assumption that if something is, if something is um, doing something differently with structure and rules, then almost by definition, you're kind of throwing something at the wall to see what sticks. And it's mm-hmm. like really, really not the case. It's like, this is just using the space differently, but it's been thoroughly tested. Well, that, like we've talked about this both on the podcast and off the podcast, but like, I'm much more like my reference base and knowledge base and like what I know more about than books is like movies. And like, I would much rather, and you know, Bob has seen more movies than I have, but also read far more books. And we've talked about like, reacting to things that sort of do something new and i would rather see something like take a swing and kind of fail but try something new than just be like the same kind of thing that we've seen before a hundred a thousand whatever times because like there's there's nothing exciting about someone like playing it safe but if i would much rather see people try something like whether it's you know old that like i didn't know about or something new and like I'm just, I'm, I'm excited. I'm per- There's not really a question here, which is a hallmark <laughs> of the show, but like I'm personally excited by just like risk taking. And I think that there's something to be commended on like trying something that like hasn't been done before or like that you want to try something new about or just anything like that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And the other thing that I think is really interesting with that is the other thing you were saying about it being a discussion between, you know, the readers and the viewers and the people making things and things are picked up from other places. And part of what's picked up is your kind of aptitude as a viewer or reader. You see that and you mm-hmm. think, oh, you know, you take that to the next thing and you use it to decode the next thing in a slightly different way or watch in a different way. And that's kind of the way that we watch and read changes over time. And I find it, it's sort of interesting that when Rorschach came out, it was, like seen by some people as quite a way out, a quite experimental novel. And I think to look at it now, it feels pretty mainstream. I mean, in terms of it, it it, it kind of has a thriller's pacing and it, it, it doesn't ask you to do huge abstract things. I think to a modern reader, I think it's more, I don't mean that it's like a mainstream book, but I think it's not the challenge of a book that it was when it came out. I think, I think you're right. I think that the, the pacing certainly, cause I think it reads really, really quickly and the language used is the language of, you know, it could, I mean, it's not the exact language of, of like a Raymond Chandler, but you're using like, like genre-fied language yeah. and, and like something that the book is doing that's really interesting to me. It is largely an external novel, which is, which is to say that like, you don't, you don't live most of the novel inside the, the protagonist's head, right? It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not, um, 
like he's not like sitting in a bathtub drinking a glass of wine thinking about his day um and and you hear the reflections on it, it like it's it's an action novel right like he's yeah. like there are a lot of it's it's verb heavy he's doing things mm-hmm. but all of that is actually in service of in interiority right like all of what is happening actually is internal and you are living this like uh traumatic path so so like what am mm. i saying here I'm, I'm saying that you're using the language and the pacing of a thriller to do something that i think traditionally more literary novels do uh to explore things like grief and things like that does any of that make sense yeah no no it definitely does and i think something I've always found interesting and and still find interesting is taking that interior journey and interior battle and finding a way to externalize it and and throw it up as an adventure or a chase or a mystery or a horror or whatever it is, but to take that internal thing and put it out into the world, but at the same time, keep it very much a part of that internal world. I think, you know, rather than just say, you know, this book is a metaphor for grief or whatever. Right. It's actually about both things. And that interior space has become external within the world of the book, which I think kind of is fun because you have your cake and eat it. Yeah, it's the the literalization of a metaphor that like, I don't know, I think that's what. I mean, horror movies do that a lot, right? Yeah. Like, especially like the, like the newfound, like, quote unquote, elevated horror or wherever it's like. It's grief, but it's like actually a monster or whatever, right? Where it's like, yeah, yeah. I get it. And like, if it's done well, you're like, oh, that was good. But like, if it's not done well, it's like, yeah, I get it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I also think like what what's what's interesting about Raw Shark is that like the third, like the the action at the end is basically just Jaws. But it's like, well, what if instead of a shark, it was like this like unshark? But it's like it, the what like the way that you're describing it is is especially in this season as we're talking about adapting things and not adapting things and whether things are easy to adapt or whatever, like this was so easy for me to visualize because it is so close to like by design, Mm -hmm. so close to Jaws. Yeah. The book says that, you know, if you're going to hunt a shark, like our collective, our collective vision of what that looks like all, you know, all looks very, very similar. And it's the last third of Jaws. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to hunt the idea of a shark, then the idea of hunting a shark follows that structure. Right. There's also a couple of books, uh, fake thrillers from the novel Jaws in Rorschach text that people are reading around the place. So there are books that were made up for the book Jaws that appear in Rorschach. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Deadly I'm Yours is uh, a thriller Chief Brody's reading in Jaws that's also in the Rorschach text. I, 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 uh, yeah. Okay. I noticed that there was the mention of the, um, oh, how am I blanking on the name of it now when I, when I recognized it, when I saw it, but there's the Victor, uh, Pelevin book, um, that you mentioned too. It's like the machines something or other. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. I, th- that's always satisfying when someone throws a book in there and you're like, I know that book. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say that, you know, similar to the, like the way that you described that, like when people picture, hunting a shark it's the last third of jaws like there was a thing i think it was in a letter that is read early like in the first like third of the book where he's like describing i think it's like a house or something he's Mm -hmm. like well now that you're like you're like it's a house like existed in my life but now it's in your head too and i'm like like that broke my brain i was saying to bob at lunch like in a very kind of like you know college like whoa like you know like getting high (laughs) for the first time being like whoa that like but like it's it's crazy to think about like the idea of just like sh- like a, a, an experience that you've had that you describe in such detail to us that even though we weren't there, it's like our memory too. Yeah. And like the way that you're able to shape memory and recollection and all of that is just, it's heady in a way that I was not prepared for and kind of like did break my brain a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that, it's unsettling that, isn't it as well? Because you yeah. start to talk about things moving around in that flow. That was... Other than the sharks, which some of which I made kind of before the main body of the story, that section about the the lake in my head now, the lake in your head, was the very first thing I wrote because I thought if I can make this work and people can read it and it makes any sort of sense to them, then the book can work. But if I can't, if I can't get this idea across, then the, the book can't stand. So I wrote that bit first, and and you know people got it and it freaked some people out, which was great. Yeah. Well, because I think what's also like weird about it, what's also freaky about it is that 
like the character is going through that, but also as the reader, you're going through it. So like there's like that multiple layers and levels of like description, understanding, visualizing, internalizing that like it's this meta textual thing beyond just like the one standard layer. It was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hopefully that kind of works on that feeling of an ease we were talking about before, that the idea that if the, if the character isn't safe, the very things that it's describing are also what the reader's going through. And even just a little bit in the back of your head, if that starts to make you think maybe I'm not quite safe, then that's all for the good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, have, I have two people that I'd like to ask you about, and, and they, might, they may not be relevant at all to, to what you're doing. You can just say... Yeah, no, that's not that's not relevant if if that's the answer. But I'd imagine that as a someone who studied visual arts in England in what the nineties were you in college in the nineties? I was, yeah. The physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living, right? That is a conceptual shark, right? The the, yeah, the yeah. Damien Hurst piece. Um, does that have anything? Did you have anything to say about that? And, and does that like come into the book at all? Because when I picture a shark, and 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 like and I picture you as part of, as someone who's made this story, like that is kind of the shark that I picture. It's strange that, isn't it? I, I, I don't think it had a lot to do with the book. Of all the many things that did have a lot to do with the book, I don't think that did. But, I mean, it's such a famous work. I kind of feel like that, where, despite its title, is sort of the opposite, isn't it? It's like the opposite of a conceptual shark. It's a huge, great actual shark right, yeah. dumped into a space where you used, you're expecting to see, you know, a, a conceptual one or, or, or you know, uh, an image of one. It is in some ways the literalization of of that metaphor, right? And I'm not, I'm still yeah. like, I mean... I'm not the biggest fan of, of Damien Hirst, but like that, it, like it feels like he's doing all of the work of that piece of art with the title or the title and the actual art are two completely separate pieces of art than, than themselves. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to, it's yeah, hard no, to wrap I, my head around. I feel kind of similarly and they're both, they're both really interesting, but they, they feel like they're, they're talking about different things, which is something I've always found quite interesting about that because it is is a literal shark okay so but he was he he must have been everywhere when you were in college right and that's yeah yeah i think so and and kind of just before i think i think he that piece was everywhere i think when i was still going to be a painter or a photographer do you know what, what it was more than anything else was i i got a project in my head and the project was can you you know, I had these books of, I used to love dinosaurs when I was a kid. I mean, I still do, but you know, those books that have a a chart and they show all the different dinosaurs and all the different creatures through the different eras changing. Sure, yeah. And I figured, is it possible to do something like that, that talks about evolution, but it also, but it talks about evolution of language and only to use letters. And so I had a whole series of artworks that I made and some of them went into Rorschach text and those things like single-celled animals, which were just vowels. And then there was a piece talking about how cells form more complicated creatures and it was letters coming together to make words. And, you know, there were fish and there was flow charts of the word dinosaur where different letters were added to make it appear as though it was structured differently and had different shapes. And so it was it was kind of playing with the idea of evolution, but also talking about the way language changes and evolves at the same time. And I think that was kind of the core of where the Rorschach creatures came from, was making that thing and realizing that actually there are a lot of fun parallels you can make between the way language changes and grows and the way that creatures evolve and change. So I think that came a little later. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's doing, it's doing a thing. I'm speaking out of my intellectual depth here, but it's doing like the Wittgensteinian thing of like, all problems are problems of language, right? Yeah. And, and like, like language, uh, like the creation of, of, of language creates an actual like thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 That's a big part of my second book is about how language makes the world and did a lot of digging into religious texts on that and how, you know, especially, you know, the old Testament, God makes things through 
words. Like it, it mm. never occurred to me until I read someone and I thought it was amazing that the light doesn't appear until in the Old Testament, God says, let there be light. And once it right. has a name, it, it happens. And then really strange things that happen, like he tends to um, work with his followers by changing the spellings of their names, which is a really strange thing to do, which I sort of found fascinating. Is that like Saul, Paul, things like that? Yeah, and taking the eye out of Sarah, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's just like the hypothesis of that book was like in a little bit like Rorschach text was about if language can flow between people's heads, what could live in those sorts of flows and streams. The game of this book was really like if the world was made from words and language, how would that look and how would that be managed and constructed? And I sort of dug into a lot of esoteric and, and, texts that were left out of various places and lots of you know years and years of reading of books that were didn't make it into the final bible and basically i was looking around for stuff that could you know be 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 looked at in such a way that you would squint at it and it would make my story feel cool and realistic when actually what i just found a wealth of stuff that was exactly what i was imagining (laughs) i was like oh you could just possibly read all of this and believe it you know as 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 a, as a logical hypothesis that, you know, that the book talks about angels and letters being the same thing. And there's all these texts that kind of link back and connect the two things that, that, you know, what, what is, what is a choir of angels singing God's glories? Really? What is it doing? Well, they're, they're kind of constructing the narrative of the world. It's, it's bonkers. And you could quite easily do something strange to your brain and end up believing all kinds of really crazy things. But for a, for a dive into writing a novel, it was really cool. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the theme that we, that, that like, uh, cause we, we've talked a lot about Don DeLillo, uh, on this podcast and, and, mm. and he like does a lot of work with language, just like, like that, like word problems and things like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, but the other person other than Damien Hurst that I wanted to ask you about, and I think that the, it, it feels even more confirmed now is Umberto Eco. Oh, Sure. So, yeah, yeah. so that that's a guy that's in your wheelhouse, and you you've um, like been through the work and stuff like that. Yeah, yes. I mean, I'm I'm probably a bigger fan of his nonfiction. I think he's one of the best writers about fiction that I've ever right. ever read. I mean, I've I've read some of his books, and I think that I think he's obviously incredible. But I was, uh, is it Six Walks in the Fictional Woods? Is that him? No. If it no. is, I haven't, I haven't read it. I'm, I'm mostly no, like, I, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, uh, Foucault's Pendulum and, and the Name of the Rose. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, Name of the Rose for sure. But no, I've read a lot of his writing about fiction. I often find that like when I really like something, I want to try and find something by the author talking about how they see writing and the act of writing so I can kind of get a grip of what's going on behind the scenes and the mechanics of that. And he's such a incredible incredible writing mind you know like that's what i love like when when you find like a band that you like it's like well what is that band's favorite bands like you find you go back you like you you trace backwards right you find like the people who influence the thing but this actually kind of pivots into a question that we really like we ask every author that we talk to and i'm very i'm maybe more curious about your answer to this than anybody else we've talked to but if people read raw shark texts and they're like, they want more. Cause like we were saying that each season of this podcast is themed around a specific thing. Like this is the unadaptable, whatever, which, you know, we've talked about that a lot, but if people were reading this and you don't have to necessarily con- contain it to just books. Cause I think that we've talked about so many different kinds of so many different forms of media, different, different mediums. But if people wanted more that were like this, not necessarily, you know, narratively or whatever way you want to take it, what would you recommend people seek out either other books or movies or art or whatever, if they want to find things that, you know, either inspired you or that feel similar to this or that you just really like? That's a really good question. Um, no, nope. it's tricky. Uh, it's tricky because I kind of try and write things that I would like to read, but that don't exist. So my sure. things sort of stick out on a limb a little bit. I think definitely, uh, Mark's stuff, House of Leaves, mm-hmm. the Revolutions, all, all of those things go without saying. I think um, 
Maxwell's Demon, my second book, carries on the same sort of explorations. Uh, I would say um, I would definitely check out the TV show Watchmen. Yeah. I mean, Damon Lindelof is like my favorite TV guy of all time. So I've loved uh, all his stuff. And that's, that series was unbelievable. Incredible. Incredible. And, and, and I'm saying that because it has such really great character work in it, despite, you know, a lot of it being preposterous. Mm -hmm. And also the, the structure of it is amazing that it, it doesn't tell you things and it holds things back and it, it treats you like a, puzzle solver expects you to arrive at that show with a certain amount of knowledge and it gives you a puzzle to solve yeah, he learned his lesson from lost i think <laughs> where everyone was, was disappointed too? i said he he learned his lesson like lost is maybe my favorite show of all time if, if it's not lost it's probably the leftovers like it's something that damon lindelof has made but like so uh -huh. many people were so upset by the lack of answers on lost that i think like from then he just like with both the leftovers and watchmen and also maybe not mrs davis which i haven't gotten to yet but it's just like you're not going to get answers. Like you need to do the work here on yourself. Like you're going to have to do a little bit more digging and bring more to. And I really appreciate that about it. Oh goodness. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's one season and it's rock solid. And mm -hmm. the way that it talks to and kind of unpicks and reverses a little bit, but pays homage to the original graphic novel. It's just, mm -hmm. oh, it's just a masterclass. I think. Are there any video games you would recommend? Um, if no, that's, that's also fine none come to mind i mean okay. i'm i'm so behind on my video gaming i have i have two little kids now and the most i can manage is like a, a quick game on my phone now and then i used to play so many video games do you think that this could become that raw shark could become a video game because it kind of feels at times like you're playing a game yeah i mean there's been a couple of times where people have come to us with that suggestion i feel like increasingly that's possible Probably way back it wouldn't have been, but I mm -hmm. can definitely see that now. I don't know. I think there's, there's, still, there's still a space between TV, film, books, and video games, and I think everything's kind of edging towards that middle space and borrowing mm -hmm. from, from all the other things and becoming enriched because of it. And I think we're getting to a place where something could you know, where something like Rorschach could be a video game and still be as satisfying as if it was a show. Wouldn't that be great? Um, there's there's one question that is not designed for you. It's a question that we ask everybody, but it feels uh, very specific to this text for some reason, which is that um, the way that Wikipedia works is you can have uh, like a, uh, you need a you need a source to, to source specific information. And we're happy to act as that source for you. If you would like us to include a bit of misinformation on your Wikipedia page, is there any lie that you'd like <laughs> us to go in and edit your Wikipedia page so that people think this thing about you, you can say it here on the show and then we'll use our show as a source to change your Wikipedia page so that there's something cool in there that you'd like to be there. All right. So it's not strictly that, but for, I'm from, um, a little town in Derbyshire in the northwest of England that's quite mm -hmm. a small town. <laughs> For most towns of that size, uh, I would have been the notable author from that mm. town, whoever it's also the town Hilary Mantel came from. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so I'm the other writer from this tiny little <laughs> mill town in Glossop. If you could make me the most famous writer from Glossop, <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> I, I think we can, we, can, we can make that effort. Um. <laughs> There's another question we ask everybody. So we're going to do, we're going to have two episodes about your work. There's, I mean, this interview and also the episode about the book itself. Do you have, because copyright doesn't mean anything to us. Do, <laughs> do you have any recommendations or personal preferences for songs? So we just have, like play a little bit of a snippet of a song to end the episode. Do you have any songs that you think go well with the text or with the interview or just songs that you really like? I'm increasingly writing to the Rolling Stones. I okay. find that their, their music works great with anything that I, I seem to write for some reason. I, I put loads of references, so anything by them would be great. The uh, the thing that immediately came to mind for me for uh, for the episode about the book was, of course, uh, Kinky Afro by Happy Mondays, because that is actually included in the text. It is. Yeah. Oh. So so that's a, that's a possibility too. But Ro Ro Rolling Stones, all right, we got you. I, I remember when Conan took over The Tonight Show and then Jay Leno was like, actually, I'm not done yet. And then so when Conan got kicked off NBC in his final days, he was uh, trying to 
incur as many expenses as possible for NBC, just as like a screw you as he was leaving the air. And I remember that he like bought the master or like licensed the master to one of the Rolling Stones, like big hits. And it was like <laughs> prohibitively, obscenely expensive, um, which wow. I just think is very funny that like, you know, not that we're paying for licensing rights here because, you know, a little bit of pirate radio, but it's just funny to be like, yeah, you know, put a Rolling Stones song there. It's like, well, there's our entire budget for our entire season. <laughs> I always thought it was funny, and I didn't realize until quite a while afterwards that the first, you know, the first verse, I think the first verse of Paint It Black could basically be a synopsis of Rorschach text. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to that. All right, so I guess that's, yeah. the, that's the outro music for this. Okay, yeah. so we got Kinky Afro, right? And then we got this. So beautiful. <laughs> nice. Fantastic. Well, this was excellent. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for writing this. And I'm looking forward to reading your second book because I like this one a lot. And I'm going to look forward to reading that one. And as I've learned from Bob, if there's one thing I've learned in this podcast is that every book is about language. And if there's a a book explicitly about language, it means that we're probably going to really like it. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Anymore, 